and welcome to the Afternoon Buzz this Monday afternoon. Hello, Dan. Hello, Buzz. How was your weekend, buddy? It was summery. Summery. And yeah, we got our garden done. We did a lot of work around out in the field. We uh, we did what Ashfield people do. We got dirty, which was great. And yeah. Enjoyed each other. Took a swim. Which of the gardens got taken care of? All, all seven. Of all seven. All seven doggone gardens. Yes. Wow. I, 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 I'm the beneficiary of them. I'm not the one who loves to work in them, but um, <laughs> after... Uh, 50 years in a relationship, I do what I'm told, and it works out very, very well. We don't want to get you in trouble, Buzz. I don't want to get in trouble. No, no, no. I want to. I want to make. Uh, want to make my best friend happy. Speaking of good friends, I am very lucky to start um, today with an old good friend and colleague, someone who I enormously respect, and someone who, unfortunately. Um, is about to um, share some of his disappointment and analysis about what the, this Supreme Court session that just closed out has left on the sidewalk for us not to step in. Bruce Miller, Professor Emeritus from the School of Law at Western New England University. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Buzz, for having me. Um, Thanks so much. So... Um, we have started uh, on the afternoon buzz, a wonderful development. It's going to be called, and has been called, First Monday, because the Supreme Court sessions always start the first Monday in October, and Bruce is willing to share his knowledge and uh, analyses and um, highs and lows with us um, once a month, and we're going to call it First Monday. July, the first Monday was July 4th. It was a holiday. We had to do it the second Monday. And uh, but here we are. Here we are. So, yeah. talk to us about what this court has uh, has done this well, past session. Well, 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 Buzz, it it uh, it was uh, an earthquake, uh, and and I I don't say that uh, lightly. Uh, you you've been in this profession for more than forty years, and I've been in it for uh, more than fifty, and there has never been uh, a term of the Supreme Court that has been so discouraging for the rule of law and for the prospects of the promise of the Constitution. In the preamble, the Constitution says that its aspiration is towards a more perfect union. Hmm. That tie between the Constitution and the aspiration to a more perfect union, I think, was severed profoundly. I hope not permanently. But for now, it is severed. Uh, the spirit of the Warren Court, which I think drew many people from our generation into the profession, and boy, really animated many of my students uh, as well, uh, is gone. Uh, I think even the modest constitutional revolution of the New Deal is severely threatened um, as well. There is a definite effort, a concerted and audacious and arrogant effort to have us live in an 18th century constitutional world mm. uh, being pursued actively uh, by at least five of the six justices. My evidence for that is, is the three most significant of the decisions. And I'm from this last term, I'm leaving aside 
the religion cases, which we can talk about if we have time, I, they're they're if we important. don't get depressed enough, we can go there. Well, yeah, but the three the three the three really important ones are are first and foremost the Dobbs decision, which uh, overruled Roe against Wade, and maybe more importantly Casey against Planned Parenthood, the two cases that uh, uh, provided for and in the Casey case provided a very strong constitutional defense for abortion rights. The second is West Virginia against the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, which saw the Supreme Court create a whole new doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine as a justification for ignoring federal statutes if the federal statutes allow federal administrative agencies to regulate in ways that a majority of the court does not like. Well, just to reinforce for any listener who doesn't know, a statute is a law passed by Congress a and signed by A statute is a law passed by Congress. Um, a, a so the law, other two branches have passed a law. They, they That's have. their job. They have. They have. And this and branch. This, this branch now strikes it, strikes it down. Oh, and in the Dobbs case, in the abortion case, uh, uh, Alito acknowledges that even though abortion rights um, are... Those, among uh, those rights that are protected for the interests of political minorities, this one, abortion rights, he perfectly well concedes, are supported by a majority. So we have a minority right that is supported by a majority and then disallowed uh, by the court. Profoundly anti-democratic decisions both. The third one is the gun case out of, out of uh, uh, New York. Uh, the name of, of that uh, case is New York Pistol and Rifle Association against Bruin. And uh, in, in, uh, in that case, uh, the court, not surprisingly, extended the right to uh, keep arms uh, and to also an individual right to bear arms in public places that cannot be overridden for good cause. Cannot be overridden for good cause. Remarkable. Can, a, a, a local jurisdiction, a state, uh, may not say to you, yes. oh, you want to carry a concealed weapon? Why would you like to carry a concealed weapon? Cannot ask that question. Um, it's unconstitutional. Right. Unconstitutional to ask that question. And the reason that it's unconstitutional to ask that question is, according to Justice Thomas, that the only kinds of justifications ever for restricting uh, bearing firearms of any kind in public are the kinds of restrictions that would have been observed in the latter years of the 18th century. Current reasons for restricting guns, say, for example, the proliferation of military-style assault weapons, completely unknown at the time of, of, of the origin of the Constitution, that can't stand as a reason. Uh, uh, the number of deaths going to handguns. I don't mean to interrupt, but yep. to, to rely on history with respect to guns, yep. I remember in law school yep. um, when I was told by one professor, his name was, uh, I think, Arthur Best, Oh, yeah. And uh, Professor Best said the rule of law really became accepted as an aspiration in the United States and recognized as the real deal when in the Old West, in Dodge City and other cities, people were told they couldn't bring their handguns, their revolvers, yeah. into city yeah. 
boundaries. And they ha or they had to leave them at the marshals or the sheriff's office. Um, and I'm thinking, what tradition are you talking about, Clarence mm -hmm. Thomas? Exactly, exactly. And, and, and Thomas is, is uh, uneven, even in his uh, purported respect for 18th century history. Uh, we, we, of course, inherited our legal system from England. And in England, there were all kinds of parliamentary imposed restrictions on guns, including uh, laws that prevented people from brandishing them in order to terrorize. And how does Justice Thomas deal with those? He said, well, we broke from England. So they, for that reason, our framers could not have intended that any of the English restraints apply to us. So it's very much what we call lawyers' selective use of history. Mm. But more profoundly, in no other area are our elected representatives prevented by the Supreme Court from trying to address, through some kind of a balancing test, current problems. Um, when it comes to guns, you can't even look at current problems. So we have three profoundly anti-democratic uh, decisions. Um, uh, you know, Justice Alito suggests that Roe did not even pretend to be about law. My argument would be that these three decisions uh, barely pretend even to be about law. They betray rule of law ideas uh, from beginning to end. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a discouraging time, I think, to, uh, for young people who are entering the profession. Uh, to uh, imagine uh, something you and I have done, which is to, you know, live, live well in the law by trying to redeem that promise as best we can towards a more perfect union. Those days, at least for now, are gone. It is actually, uh, last Friday we had Representative Natalie Blay on. Poor thing is she was home uh, quarantined because of COVID. First time she's got it, but she was. But um, and my final question to her was, what do you say to progressives like me who feel despair? We, we are feeling despondent. The Supreme Court and what's going on in Congress have left us close to hopeless. And she had a great answer, uh, of course, but let me ask the question to you. How, dis how despair do you feel with, as a man of law, as somebody who has promoted the rule of law for a half a century, you've proselytized about it. You've tried to convince other people to put their hope in a better society, in the law. How do you feel these days? Um, I'm, I'm pretty close to that bottom place, Buzz, that you described yourself as being before. Natalie must have said something to you to cheer you up. No, I, am, uh, I am not uh, optimistic about our ability to revive the rule of law much of, of our current situation is owing, unfortunately, to structural features in the Constitution. How did these three justices who made this six to three majority get there? Well, we all know how, how they got there. They got there illegitimately, all three of them. But they got there because the United States Senate, a profoundly anti-democratic institution, uh, controls the nominations, the nomination process, even as uh, right now the majority, the Republican majority, uh, 50, the 50 Republicans represent roughly 40% of the country. Um, how did President Trump get in a position to appoint these justices? Through the Electoral College, another anti-majoritarian institution. 
how do uh, the voting rules that have enabled Trump to take power and look like they might do it again, where do they get established? Well, they get established by the state legislatures who are by our constitution uh, given the power to determine rights to the vote. The Supreme Court wants to look at that again. And they're going to look at that next term and, and probably lock in the power of state legislatures to determine who the electors are for each of the states. So, uh, you know, uh, those who fear majority rule in this country have used the counter-majoritarian, anti-majoritarian features of the Constitution very effectively to their advantage. So I I don't have a, what I want to call a constitutional solution. I've got a couple of ideas, but not a constitutional solution. I'm going to, uh, during the break, which we're about to take, I'm going to wipe my eyes I'm going to catch my breath. I'm going to ask for those ideas. We're with Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller talking about, in particular, three cases that came out of this dreadful United States Supreme Court session. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMD. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMD. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank, with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMD. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. I never voyaged so far in all my life. You'll see men you never heard of before, whose names you don't know, going long way down through the meadows with long ducking guns and watertight boots, wading through the meadow grass, looking at ducks, teal, blue wing, green wing, sheldrakes, ospreys, and many other wild and noble sights before night, such as they who sit in parlors never dream of. You shall see rude and sturdy, experienced and wise men, keeping their castles or teaming up their summer's wood, chopping alone in the woods, men fuller of talk and rare adventure in the sun and the wind and chestnut is of meat, who are not only out in 1775 and 1812, but have been out every day of their lives. Greater men than Homer or Chaucer or Shakespeare, only they never got the time to say so. They never took to the way of writing. Look at their fields and imagine what they might write if ever they should put pen to paper. This thorough reading is brought to you by the Franklin Land Trust. 
Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnaam.org. Call 413-587-0084. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back in studio with Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller of um, the uh, Western New England University School of Law. When we, we, we took a break, before the break we were talking about three cases that came out of the last session that uh, have dire consequences for millions and millions of people. Um, foreseeable consequences, harmful consequences that the court knew would result from the opinions which they, in the rulings, which they landed on. Um, and so what's the solution, Bruce Miller, to um, just continuing to have this court make dreadful rulings? Well, if 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 I had if I had the solution, Buzz, and if and if you had had the the the, the solution, um, uh, you know, the Boston Red Sox would also be twenty games ahead of the New York <laughs> Yankees. I mean, we we don't, but but we we do have some ideas, and and it's it seems to me that one of the solutions we're already seeing, and that is. Um, resistance, especially to the overruling of Roe. And that resistance is taking the form of litigation um, under state constitutions, um, arguments uh, under state statutes, essentially lawyers and their clients making trouble um, as a result. Good trouble. Good trouble, absolutely. Um, uh, that is one kind of possibility. There is also, you know, the, the time-honored tradition in our country of a withdrawal of consent uh, from injustice, and that's the way social change has basically happened. The law has always followed. Uh, up till now, the Constitution has allowed for that opening. Um, now it's the people. Um, the people can still, by making good trouble, um, uh, uh, create uh, a different kind uh, of law. Very long-term project, but how do you, even by making trouble, uh, get from here to there? One possibility that occurs to me is, is something I never, ever thought I'd want to give the time of day to, and that is to convene a new constitutional convention. Uh, it takes, it takes I just heard a collective gasp. Absolutely. It, uh, I've been scared to death of what that might produce, especially because it's generally been a, a right-wing project. Uh, uh, but I think maybe the discussion that would result if there was some kind of agitation towards taking a look at the deeply undemocratic structure of our Constitution would yield a, a useful political discussion. It takes two-thirds of the states uh, to agree uh, to hold a constitutional convention, and if they come up with a new document, if that were to happen, it would take three-quarters of the states to ratify it. Um, I think, you know, the first of those is unlikely. The second is probably almost impossible. Uh, 
Well, the equal, just making equal rights for women has yep. been like 45 has, years, and we still has. don't have we still the don't have it. that state. amendment yeah. process has not, has not has not worked. Yeah. I'm not I'm not sure I see this unfolding to produce a new constitution. I see it working to produce a, a discussion uh, a discussion in which. Uh, Folks, folks like us and, and the people who are, have been our, you know, uh, at loggerheads political opponents um, uh, deal with each other. Uh, we have to listen to them. They have to listen to us. This doesn't sound very optimistic. Uh, to, and I don't mean to, to act like I think it is. Because I haven't found a lot of listeners on the other side. It does seem to me to be time to recognize the structural flaws in our existing document that an anti-majoritarian Supreme Court majority and their allies in the other branches have taken great advantage of to the great detriment of the people of the United States. Bruce, you've been retired for, what, a year and a half, two years? R roughly, yeah. When you talk to students as these kinds of yes. decisions just kept coming down from the Roberts Court, um, what was your sense as young lawyers... I, let me... Let me, let me Erase that and, and rewind and come back. I remember being a law student. I was so full of promise. I was so full of hope. I was going to get on a horse and I was going to, along with everybody else in my law yeah. school class, we were going to change the world. Yes. And we were going to not only vindicate wrong, yes. we were going to make everyone understand the difference between right and wrong because yeah. we are so yeah. powerfully yeah. Uh, able to persuade people. Yes. That's why we're going to yes. be lawyers, because we're good at, at convincing people of stuff. How did students, all those years later, 40 years later that you taught, um, feel about what they're seeing happen to the Constitution and the rule of law? Well, my students, uh, you know, uh, I haven't been teaching them since these decisions came down. My mm -hmm. final course, uh, I, was, I was continuing to teach uh, as an adjunct the last two years. My final course ended at the end of April. And we'd seen a little bit of this, but not all of it. But my students, by and large, still held to those ideals and uh, saw the law as playing not necessarily uh, uh, the, the core role, but an essential role in bringing about a just society and, and, and that our skills as lawyers would have something to do with that. Um, uh, my courses were by and large filled with optimistic voices. Um, idealistic voices, voices that took the supremacy clause of the Constitution seriously, the supreme law of, of the land. Um, uh, so, you know, we'll see how, 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 they, how they feel. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I will be, I won't be teaching them anymore, so I won't have that direct way of finding out, but I will find out because I tend to really stay in touch with the people I've been lucky enough to have in my classes. Right, and, and, and we'll see what people like that because those people are in the millions that are young and have the same zealous um, desire to make changes for we the people um, in order to form a more perfect union yeah. and to ensure domestic tranquility for everyone, it's just uh, what we need is more people like that in all three branches, right? Um, that's what we need. Exactly. 
I am so grateful that we have Bruce Miller here. Um, we're going to have him here monthly on first Monday. We're going to be able to talk about things. Even if we're going to start our week with depressing news, it's important that we hear it from somebody who knows what he's talking about. Bruce, thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much, Buzz. Can't wait to see you again. We're going to be back with the mayor of Salem, Kim Driscoll, came here from the eastern part of the state specifically to be in studio to talk about her uh, candidacy as for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. We'll be back with Kim Driscoll right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Now the latest from WHMP, I'm Monty Belmonte, in for Jess Tyler. The city of Greenfield is urging residents to voluntarily conserve water as the region is entering moderate drought conditions. The lack of rain and the dredging of the Leiden Glen Reservoir has reduced the available water for the city. The city will be relying on the Millbrook, Wellfield, and Green River pumping station for water through the summer. Residents can reduce water consumption by limiting lawn watering, car washing, washing full loads of laundry and dishes, and installing water-saving devices. As of this spring, 14 of the 19 transfer stations in Franklin County have composting programs. Charlemont, Conway, Shelburne, and Warwick have started or restarted their food waste collection programs this spring. According to the Franklin County Solid Waste Management District, trash in our region is sent to the Carolinas. So separating food waste can reduce trash by 28% and save money for residents. Composting food waste through these programs is easier than backyard composting because all food waste is accepted, including meat, dairy, and compostable paper products. Any county resident can bring organic waste to the Greenfield Transfer Station for $5 host fee. Visit franklincountywastedistrict.org for more info. WHMP Sports, Jeter Downs' as bases-loaded blooper dropped in to break a sixth-inning tie as the Boston Red Sox scored nine unanswered runs to rally past the Yankees 11-6 after losing the first two games of the series and falling 16 games behind the first-place Yankees in the American League East. The Sox managed at least a split. Tracking a warm start to the work week for today, mostly sunny, highs 84 to 88. Tonight, mostly clear, overnight lows 62 to 66. And they look for Tuesday, sunshine and clouds, hot and humid with afternoon showers and thunderstorms, highs around 90. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. I'm Monty Belmonte, in for Jess Tyler, WHMP News. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Martha Graham, Mum and Shants, Blind Boys, Cherish the Ladies, Peking Acrobats, Ukraine Philharmonic, Nikki, and Stomp, all on their way to the UMass Fine Arts Center. 
Mum and Chance in their 50th year. Cherish the ladies, a Celtic Christmas. The Martha Graham Dance Company with the lost Graham masterwork, Canticle for Innocent Comedians. Snarky Puppy unleashes their ferocious improvisation. Nikki shines a ray of pop sunshine. And Gina Chavez blends the sound of the Americas with tension and grace. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, plus performances you just can't categorize. Stomp arrives for three performances. Head-turning trumpeter Sean Jones leads his quartet on stage, plus visits the UMass High School Jazz Festival. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the full calendar and tickets. Using WIC is easier than ever. Now you can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. WIC helps families learn to shop for nutritious foods and offers resources like online nutrition education and an app to make shopping easier. Visit us online at mass.gov WIC to find out if you qualify. This message is brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-598. When I was a kid, a bowl of cereal seemed incomplete unless it was topped with sliced bananas. And we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole. And our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh Fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting, and bon appetit. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com y hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. 
This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 W. And welcome back for those who are just rejoining us, and thank you for joining us, those who are just coming. We have in studio, coming all the way from Salem, Massachusetts, uh, Mayor Kim Driscoll of of Salem (laughs) and uh, the Lieutenant Governor candidate, and we're going to talk to her in a minute. Um, We just want to tell you the rest of the week we have, tomorrow we have Professor... Carrie Noble's coming in. She's done extensive research and just got a major grant to continue her research on environmental factors um, causing male infertility. Um, We also will be talking to a couple of actors involved in Williamstown Theater Festival. On Wednesday, we have the president and CEO of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, Max Richmond, who's been right in the thick of discussions about prescription drug negotiations to be able to lower prices for Medicare um, for uh, by not having pharma just giving us whatever price it wants to get as the price of our drugs for those of us who are on Medicare. That should be an interesting conversation. Brian Adams is going to bring in uh, Tom Riccardi, who discusses raptors and raptor rehabilitation in studio and uh, on Friday, Don Conlon will be here with Warm Color Apiaries, the crisis about bees, beekeeping, and pollination. We'll be talking about that and about food insecurity with Heidi Norton-Smith from the Northampton Survival Center. So do join us for those discussions. But today, I'm so excited. Hello, Kim Driscoll. Great to be here. It's great to have you here all the way from, I can pronounce Salem, <laughs> <laughs> all the way from Salem. So... You're running for lieutenant governor. I am. I'm really excited about the opportunity to take this local government experience and uh, partner with our governor and do good things for communities. So so let me ask you the big question first, and then we'll go to the lesser questions. Okay, I like this plan. Why should people vote for you? <laughs> well, I do feel like I've been mayor in Salem for the last 16 years. Prior to that, I worked for the city of Chelsea as they were coming out of receivership. I really believe in the value and power of communities. Local government is the government you rely on the most, educating your kids, keeping your neighborhood safe, investing in those places you make memories. And I think someone who's been a mayor, particularly of a city like Salem, where it's very much the challenges we're facing there are a microcosm of the challenges we're facing at the state level. You have a sense of urgency. I call it the let the get stuff done branch of government. And I think that'll be a great experience to partner with our next governor to make sure as we're thinking about using resources, we're reminding that the work that happens in communities really matters to impact the quality of life and the places people live. Well, I know I was reading about uh, what you did with ARPA funds. Now, that comes from federal government. And um, needless to say, in that particular federal enactment, every community got something. Uh, fortunately during the pandemic. But tell us what you did with those ARPA funds that you got. Yeah, and we're still doing I'm sorry, doing American things. Rescue Plan Act That's right. Funds. We love our acronyms in government, don't I we? Know. So ARPA, American Rescue Plan Act funds, uh, were dollars directly going to communities. And it was a, you know, a calculation based on per capita and other statistics that enabled us to reinvest in both in the industries that were hard hit by COVID, make sure we were prepared to deal with this pandemic. And we're still in a recovery mode, for sure, even though we're all feeling good about where the numbers are at in our communities. Uh, So we have resources for that. And then how do we work to make sure we're thinking about longer-term economic prosperity for both people and industries that were impacted by COVID? So we're using some of our dollars. We were a a tourism and hospitality community to make sure we're helping that uh, industry rebound, uh, investing in festivals, investing in workforce. We have so many of our industries who are looking for help and in need of help and need to train help. So we are putting some dollars there. We know housing has been a key issue and a key challenge. Uh, So we're working to ensure that we're thinking about ways to 
allow for housing to be created in our community in an easier way, particularly affordable housing. That's both things like accessory dwelling units and helping community members who need assistance with something like first, last, and security. Efforts around um, child care. We're working on a child care workforce investment initiative, uh, knowing how critical it is that we have more child care centers to help early ed, uh, both people who want to return to work. Uh, that industry was hit hard. We lost a number of our child care providers, and we know that's going to be critical to fully rebound, particularly for women who oftentimes end up being, you know, someone who's responsible for uh, for staying home with the kids. If we're serious about getting that industry, uh, those folks back to work uh, and helping working families. As a mom myself, I know how expensive it is. So we've expanded pre-K opportunities in Salem. We're using some of our resources for that. And these ARPA dollars, you know, they're one-time funding. So we also want to use it to invest in capital areas of our community that would normally have to come over onto the tax rolls, using dollars for parks, outdoor spaces, places that we know, you know, we really spent a lot more time in uh, during COVID and saw the value of as a nearly 400-year-old city. Uh, we've got no shortage of capital needs in that water, sewer, outdoor recreation and facility uh, space. Well, your experience in Salem, you know, Salem is a pretty unique place. It's a pretty special place. And... It has its own problems, and cities of a certain size have problems that a lot of rural cities, which we have out here, a ton, I know in Middlesex you have tons of rural, but they're just not, you know, <laughs> they're our not average, the same rural as the rural not here. Not the same kind sure. of rural as here. We have, I think, uh, for our 57 towns in Franklin and Hampshire County, I think that we average something like 1,250 people. The population is different, so the problems are different. The regionalization of our schools is different. What experience, do you, I know at Chelsea you had serious education experience as counsel and working otherwise to unpack that nightmare in receivership. Fortunately, that doesn't happen often. But what other experience do you have that you could bring to the needs of all these rural towns? Yeah, I think if you've been involved in local government, you realize it's not a one-size-fits-all approach to anything. There are laws that are passed in Boston that are really hard for a city my size, uh, like Salem, to, to implement. And I will say there are challenges because we have all of the problems of a larger city, but not all of the resources to help resolve them. And I feel that when I talk to rural leaders here. Uh, that things that bread and butter that you rely on in local government, you know, public service buildings, public safety buildings, they're not, there's not an investment stream for that. You know, how do we support our smaller communities who have the same needs but don't have the same resources? And in my estimation, as someone who's been on the trenches in the front lines, I understand that. Like, I care about hometowns. I understand the benefit of government in our local communities, whether they're rural, whether they're urban, whether they're more suburban. There are lots of bedroom communities who, you know, worry about making ends meet for, for their municipal needs. Um, I think that you want that kind of perspective in the state house. And so even though places are rural, we need to be thinking about how the laws that are passed in Boston have an impact. Perfect example, I was talking to some of the hill towns, and they said to me, we really love the police accountability law, the POST Act that was adopted, but we have three officers, and it's and such an administrative burden. And we can't afford to send them all to the academy. Exactly, and it's such an administrative burden to you know, introduce that law in our communities. And so I hope, you know, I, I'm certainly familiar with the, the uh, impact of uh, rural communities in particular and the inequities that exist, the bump report that Auditor Bump put together, right. um, and we need to make sure we're thinking about that as we're acting. Um, Every city and town needs help and assistance, but it may not all look the same. And and you know, I know you know Mayor Kim Driscoll of Salem, candidate for lieutenant governor. I know you were just in Greenfield, which is having dramatic problems um, with respect to a verdict that found that a an African-American police officer had been discriminated against. And, and in the wake of that, the council cut very substantial for Greenfield, 445000 I think, 
from the police budget, um, causing them to like lay off half of their people. It's a serious problem. How, as lieutenant governor, will you be able to marry the problems of a city like Salem, which has all the problems of a big city, but not all the benefits of being a big city, and Boston, and at the same time, the hill towns and the the smaller towns of Western Mass. Yeah, I think one of the ways you do that is listen and spend time here. So we spend a tremendous amount of time in Western Mass trying to understand what the needs are on the ground. I'm fortunate to have the support of so many local leaders. We've got close to 200 endorsements. A lot of those are local officials, colleagues. I've been in office 16 years as mayor, been reelected five times. That doesn't happen unless you're a good listener and that you're also accountable when you make decisions in City Hall. Not everyone agrees with those decisions, but they hope and, and expect that you're making decisions in the best interest of the community. So I want to leverage that experience to help whether you're a small town with less than a thousand people, and I've been in those places, in those living rooms, or a big city, uh, in, in comparison to some of those small towns, Greenfield would fit that, fit that mix and make sure we're thinking about ways that we can be a resource, both technical resource, dollar resource, and just the power of convening. Uh, that's the lens I have and certainly the work I hope to do uh, if I'm fortunate enough to be elected lieutenant governor. There we go. And that's what we're talking about. Uh, Kim Driscoll is telling us why we should vote for her. We're going to continue the conversation, which I'm grateful to have. I know she drove all the way out to Northampton to talk to us. We'll be right back with Kim right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMG. On our next show, we'll be speaking with one of the candidates running for sheriff of Hampshire County, Caitlin Cepeda. Following up on the Red Sox victories over the Yankees, we'll be talking baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman. All this beginning Tuesday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9. And again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. A lot of mattress stores, all they talk about is price. Sale, 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 save, 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 blah, blah, blah. I get it. No one wants to pay a dollar more than you have to. But what do you really know about mattresses? Are you an expert? I'm not. And I have a furniture store. So I at least know a little. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon Furniture. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Therapeutic. The best mattress value I've ever found. And believe me, I've looked around. Therapeutic mattresses are made in Brockton. I've walked the floor and it was reassuring because there's no toxicity, no off-gassing. Therapeutic mattresses are clean and made by fellow Red Sox fans. Play the sale, sale, sale game if you want. That's not for me. A therapeutic mattress from Talent Furniture is your best bet and best deal. Today, tomorrow, or whenever you decide to buy a new mattress. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. And I'm Mortgage Originator Kimberly Gates. If you're looking to buy a home, now's the perfect time to save on your Greenfield Co-op mortgage. That's right. We can save you up to $1,000 on your mortgage closing costs. Don't miss the opportunity to receive a $750 closing credit plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you. Chat with one of our experienced mortgage originators at any of our Hampshire and Franklin County locations to get started. Or if you're ready, visit our 
our new website at bestlocalbank.com and start your application online. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Kimberly Gates, or me, Missy Tapetro, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by September 30th. Be a first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $1,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back with uh, Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll, candidate for lieutenant governor. So let's start there. When we were in the break, just before we came back, uh, Dan, producer Dan Torres said, I'd be interested in knowing what her view of the position is, and I think that's a great question. It really what is. What is your view of what a lieutenant governor does, should do, maybe doesn't do now? Yeah, that's a really great question because I think some folks are confused about that. You know, any large organization relies on a team of leaders and like a state government, much like a city or a corporate or private entity, you do want to have quality, talented, experienced people, you know, in positions of leadership and being able to influence the work that you're doing and implementing an agenda. The lieutenant governor serves with the governor, right? After the primary, you're elected as a coordinated effort. I'm going to interrupt Kim just at... Does a lieutenant governor serve the governor or serve with the governor? Serves with the governor, but you are elected um, as a team following the primary. So it really much becomes a coordinated campaign. On the Republican side, they typically team up sooner. Weld, Salucci, Baker, Polito. And now we're seeing that with the current Republican candidates. But the Democrats, it's more of a shotgun marriage on September 6th. And then it's a coordinated campaign through November. The, the lieutenant governor has two formal roles. That's chairing the governor's council, which is an important body. That's We always say it's the most important body that nobody really knows about. But approves judicial appointments, pardons, commutations. There were just two nominations by this governor. Excellent, yep. right, in terms of the work that needs to get done to make sure we have an experienced uh, judiciary and one that is hopefully representative of our communities. You also chair what's called the Local Government Advisory Council, or LGAC, so a collection of municipal leaders who you meet with regularly so you can keep tabs on what's happening locally and understand those issues and hopefully at the forefront of helping. Um, the lieutenant governor for the last 16 years, both the current one and the one prior, Mayor Tim Murray from Worcester, had also taken on a, a key role in terms of being a liaison to cities and towns. There are 351 communities, different needs, different regions. How do you make sure state government and particularly, you know, the governor's agenda is working for those? So as lieutenant governor, I certainly hope to carry on that work. But really, you're a key confidant and trusted partner of the governor hoping to implement that agenda from housing to early ed to the climate crisis and any challenges that we're dealing with. It not, doesn't happen unless there's action at the local level. So for me, I certainly hope to be able to play a role in bringing my experience as a mayor, as the former deputy city manager and legal counsel in Chelsea, you know, into this, this sense of urgency that we have for action at the state level and making sure we're thinking about how it's going to impact people on the ground. That's what folks expect out of government. And uh, that's certainly the lens I'll bring to the work. The overwhelming fa favorite now, she was just here last week. We got to talk with her, Maura Healy. Um, and, and Maura's terrific. But sometimes she's done some things because she's been a, uh, an attorney general. 
I think that she thought were consistent with the responsibilities and duties of a, an attorney general. Like, for example, she was opposed to the decriminalization of marijuana. Didn't go over big with a lot of pro progressives that she was doing that. If you were lieutenant governor and you felt differently, how would you approach the governor? Yeah, you always want to be able to have a trusting relationship with uh, the governor as in any of those roles. Secretary of Cabinet, certainly as lieutenant governor as well. I know as mayor, I really rely on my senior staff. When we are talking about issues and challenges, I don't want a, bit a bunch of yes men or yes women around me. I want people who are really going to engage on an issue. You want to be a Lincoln, you don't want to be a Trump? Exactly. And those discussions really matter. They help influence policy. You want to make sure the folks around the table come from different backgrounds, bring different experiences to bear, and then you come to a decision. And ultimately, in my case is mayor. It is my decision. In the governor's case, it will be the governor's decision. And we go out and back it. You've got to respect that you can't have 20 bosses, uh, but you also want to certainly be in a position where you can provide input, help influence an agenda, and move Massachusetts forward. That's why those of us who, I think, enter government is because we want to see good things happen. And I certainly, you know, live by that mantra myself. I want to hear all voices. I want to listen. Ultimately, we need to make a decision, and I hope folks will back it. Mm. As mayor of Salem, you're also a mother of three, right? I am. How did you juggle the time? That's a big job, being a mother of three, being a mayor of a city like Salem. How did you make the two? How did you find the time? Yeah, you know, some days better than others, right? When I first took office, my kids were three, five, and nine. And any working parent can tell you, you know, there are days you don't want to leave the office to go home. There are days you don't want to leave home to go into the office. And, you know, you try and do your best to be as flexible. When you're mayor, at least you're living and working in the same community. So you're, you know, cutting down on some of but the community. But the governor's a statewide office. It is. Now, thankfully, my children are a lot older. They're, uh, they're not somebody calling me every day at five to say, what's for dinner? What are we doing? They're a little bit uh, more able to take care of themselves. How old are your kids now? 19. 21 and 24. Oh, they're almost so, people. Different type of need, right? <laughs> and uh, I'm very fortunate to also have a super supportive spouse. So like any working parent, you know, you're doing everything you can to make sure, you know, you're, uh, you're taking care of your family, but also putting food on the table and, and enjoying what you do. Uh, I'm passionate about service. I really do believe that local government is that branch that people rely on. And I'm hoping, like I said, to take that experience, put myself in a position where I can help partner with our next governor to do good work for communities. Because that is what people rely on every single day. Those of us in government delivering services, being, uh, you know, an asset, a help to how people are getting along, especially in a state like Massachusetts, very high cost state, you know, where we know that there's going to be, I think, some choppy waters ahead. What can we do with these historic resources we have, both federal dollars and the additional resources coming in from the state to diminish the burden that people are feeling? How do we, as myself, as a, someone who's been a city leader, work to make sure cities and towns are healthy and vibrant? When we have healthy and vibrant communities, we have a healthy and vibrant commonwealth. If you, if Maura Healy wins, she will be the first elected woman governor in Massachusetts history. If you win... You'll be, I think, the second lieutenant governor, Jane Swift. Is there another one other than that? No, I think Jane Swift is the... No, Evelyn Murphy, of course. Evelyn Murphy, right. okay, yep. that's right. But um, do, do, do you think... Well, what are your impressions? What are, you, what are you thinking would be the impact of having, other than the obvious ceremonial impact, is huge. Yeah. It's great to think that we would have women leaders uh, as in both uh, governor and... Lieutenant Governor position, but what, what would be the real impact of having two women leading 
the executive branch of Massachusetts? Well, it certainly would be history-making. We've had lots of times where we've had two men or one man and one woman, so this would be making history to have two women in the corner office. But really, what difference would it make? Yeah, and I think the difference is, look at what we're facing right now with Supreme Courts that are now going to be passing off uh, abortion rights to state legislatures that are very much male-dominated. Um, right now, this world is very much not necessarily female forward. And we think about the issues and challenges, whether it's, you know, things like abortion rights or, frankly, having thriving families. The fact that early ed providers are paid so significantly less, keeping women out of the workforce. There are going to be challenges that we face that I believe having two women in office is going to be powerful in terms of our lived experiences. I'll also say we're also two women who played college sports. We both are hoop players. And uh, that, to me, that team mentality, uh, the ability to recognize we have skill sets, we have strengths and weaknesses. How do we play up our strengths? How do we acknowledge what some of those challenges are and move an agenda forward? How do we do so in a way that brings people together? When you play on a team, you don't love everybody you play with, but you find a way to have an aligned goal and go after it and get it. And I think that's a skill set that we both share. And um, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to partner with her. I'd be honored to do so because I think we've got work to do, whether it's on early ed, on housing affordability, on the climate crisis, on transportation challenges. And I'm not just talking about the four-letter word, the MBTA. That's happening throughout Massachusetts. We've had inspiration gaps, and we have an opportunity to move an agenda forward. And I'm hoping to be a part of that. And I know she is, too. <laughs> we, In the 45 seconds we have left, not enough time for this question, but... Tell us why we in Western Massachusetts should feel comfortable having an Eastern Massachusetts mayor as our lieutenant governor. You know, I really am glad you asked that question because I am a person who really believes in the power of hometowns. And even though I'm not the hometown gal, I know we need hometowns to work. And for me, investing in communities, ensuring that they're working and working well, um, it's important. I think Western Mass is beautiful and it's immense opportunities. You don't have to be from here to love that, this this particular region. And I also understand how people feel neglected uh, given some of the work that's been under, done already with respect to rural communities and the inequities that exist. I want to correct that because I believe in the power of local government. The only way to do that is to have somebody who knows how to do that. If someone who's been in City Hall, I know what that work is. I've been in the trenches. I, I want to make sure people know I'm going to be here for Western Mass because I believe in the power of communities. Her name is Kim Driscoll. She's the, currently the mayor of Salem. She wants to run for lieutenant governor. We'll talk about the West East Rail next time we talk. Thank you for joining us today, Kim. Thanks so much for having me. appreciate the opportunity to be here. Join us tomorrow at 4 on the Afternoon Buzz. Thanks for joining us today. Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMD. I guess I called AA because alcohol didn't work anymore. Drinking used to give me a sense of meaning in life. I called AA not knowing what to expect. Certainly not cheerfulness, but that's what I got. People had humor. They seemed to be at ease. I hung around. Now I feel much more comfortable with myself and the people around me. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 5 o'clock.